read for us earlier, Luke chapter 24, looking at verses 36 through 53, but I'd like us to begin in Luke chapter 1. So as you're turning, go to Luke chapter 1, please. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, to, to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so luke's gospel begins with those words and as was read for us by jerry earlier they ended with the words in luke 24 and luke has masterfully crafted his gospel to begin and end with the same themes we could say that luke has followed the classic mantra of tell them what you're going to say Say it and then tell them what you said. Now, not to be misunderstood, Luke is not creating this material, but rather giving an orderly narrative of what eyewitnesses have seen. And he did this, as we just read, so that this Gentile, Theophilus, would believe what was taught. And Luke's narrative tells many things. If you're still in Luke 1, you could see right after that in Luke 1 32 through 33, where it says, the angel came to Zechariah, telling him that he would have a son. And then the angel came to the Virgin Mary. And in verse 32, the angel says to Mary, chapter 1, He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, we have the account to Zechariah that he would have a child. Then we have the account to Mary that she would have a child. And then Luke returned in chapter 1 to Zechariah again. And Zechariah prophesying in Zechariah 1, we'll look at verse 76 through 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then the day came of Jesus birth and he was then declared by the angels the famous verses Luke chapter 2 verse 14 where the angels declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased and you may remember right after that Jesus took was taken I should say to the temple to be presented and there a man named Simeon came up to him and he took Jesus in his arms. In Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, it says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Luke's gospel began with all these accounts telling of what Jesus would be like. And then the rest of Luke's gospel plays this out that he will reign forever as the descendant of david that he'll bring peace through the forgiveness of sins and he'll do this for jew and gentile in these final verses here in luke 24 jesus shows 
how he fulfilled all of what was said about him. You know, it's interesting. If you read Luke, you'll recognize that he didn't just write this. He also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And Acts will open where Luke wraps up, and that is with the Ascension. You know, Luke says Jesus was with them 40 days, he tells us in Acts. And here in Luke, the Gospel, we're given a shortened account. You have a friend who is a missionary and who told me when they return, you could tell of their missions trip in either 30 seconds, 3 minutes, or 30 minutes. And you had to gauge what does the person in front of me want to hear. Well, here at the end of Luke, Luke 24, we're given the 30-second version of Jesus' ascension. In Acts chapter 1, we're given the three-minute version. And then next week, when we return to Ephesians, we'll see why the ascension of Jesus is so important. And we'll even begin to look at that now. But as we look at these verses in Luke 24, I want to point out three things. First, in verses 36 through 43, it's Jesus showing himself again to his disciples. Then, second, in verses 43 through 49, Jesus teaches, and then he commissions his disciples. And then lastly, in the last four verses, 50 to 53, Jesus blesses and leaves his disciples. So first, Jesus shows himself to the disciples. So you may remember the context. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Luke's 24th chapter begins with the women going to anoint his body, but finding his tomb empty and angels telling him, telling them that he has been taken. They go and tell the disciples, but they consider this an idle tale until Peter and John go. Then we looked at last week how the two disciples, as they walked to the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to them, but they confessed that we had hoped, they said in verse 15. We had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. When Jesus was crucified, their faith was shaken. And yet then, as Jesus explains the scriptures, and then when they get to Emmaus, when he breaks bread before them, they realize who he is. And so we ended last week with them returning to the disciples, verse 34, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And so now, Jesus comes, in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. Now when we hear the word peace, we think of it in contrast with conflict. You're no longer fighting. And the biblical word includes that, but it includes much more. It's an idea of wholeness, that life has been returned to the way it should be. And Jesus came to bring that peace. That's why the angel said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And Jesus ends his message where he began, that he came to bring peace. Now put yourself in the disciples' sandals. You were there in this room, and when is the last time most of them had seen Jesus? It's when they had turned to flee from him. It's when the soldiers had come to arrest him And the last they saw was their heads turning and running for their own lives. So what would you expect Jesus' first words are going to be when he sees them again? We probably would expect rebuke, condemnation, anger. But Jesus' first words to them are, peace be 
to you. Now, it's interesting because Jesus had said, Matthew 10, 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Yet Jesus proclaims peace because Jesus came to bring peace. And yet notice verse 37, they still don't get it. And they say, look, is this a spirit? You know, they don't understand. Here we are, as John's gospel tells us, in a locked room, and yet Jesus appears to us. How could this be? Now, before we condemn them, we need to realize how quickly we understand something. I mean, they just said Jesus is alive. And yet we will affirm things and then turn around and act like we don't believe them. We'll leave after singing Amazing Grace that we've been forgiven so much. And one person bumps us and we go, how could you do that? We don't extend the grace that we just said we believe in. Here they just said Jesus is alive and yet when he appears, they're thinking, oh, it's just a spirit. And yet Jesus responds by asking, why are they troubled? Why do they have these doubts? Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, guys, you've got to figure this out. I've tried to show you, but, you know, you've got to figure this out on your own. Instead, verses 40 through 41 shows he gives proofs that he has risen, that he's not just a ghost. Notice verse 40, he says, or he shows them his hands and his feet. He wants them to realize, look, you cannot just see me. You could see ghosts. You can feel me what you can't do to a ghost. And then verse 41, and while they still disbelieved, for joy were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? So they begin to believe. And it says they enjoy marvel. Now that might seem weird, but it's one of the many times you've probably seen online where someone returns maybe from being deployed overseas and they show up to some meeting or the workplace or the school place of their loved one and all of a sudden they realize they're back. And in joy they go, is it really you? I mean, they know it's them, but they're so excited to see them that they rejoice in their disbelief. And here the disciples rejoice and they give Jesus this broiled fish. The second clear proof that Jesus is not just a spirit, but he is risen bodily again. Thus Luke is providing for Theophilus the very thing he promised, eyewitness testimony of the reality of who Jesus is and what he did. And this testimony should keep us from two common errors that still exist today. Last week as we were in Sunday school, we were talking about how some people even today will say, well, the resurrection is just pointing to this wonderful idea. And it's not just an idea. Jesus did bodily rise from the grave. On the other hand, we need to realize that when Jesus arose, he had more than just the body he had before. He now has a resurrection body. He can now be in Emmaus, disappear, and then reappear in Jerusalem. And yet it is a body. You know, when we die and or return to the Lord, the resurrection of our bodies, we will not float on clouds strumming harps for all eternity. You will have a body that eats and drinks 
runs and plays and does all the things that we enjoy now, but without sin and in the presence of God. And Jesus wants them to have this visible, visible, physical reality that he rose again. He doesn't want them just to hope that this is true. He wants them to know this is true. And he wants to explain it, and that's what happens next. The second thing, in verses 44 through 49, Jesus teaches and commissions his disciples. Sorry, if you can't tell, my voice is going out quickly, so I'm trying to hang on. So Jesus teaches and commissions the disciples, verses 44 through 49. And notice what verse 44 says. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You know, Jesus is saying what happened was not an option. It had to be the way it occurred. It's not like God had plans A through Z, and Jesus came, and they just kind of charted which plan. Okay, well, that didn't work. Let's go to this plan. No, God has had one plan throughout time. And notice that this plan was made known throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is divided often into the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, three big headings. And that's what Jesus said, that he explained how the scriptures were about him in all three of those parts. You know, all of scripture is about Jesus. And Jesus used the scriptures, verse 45 tells us, to open their minds to understand the scriptures. And this is a very important thing that people often miss, that scripture helps us understand scripture. If I want to know what one verse says, often looking at another verse can make it clear. And Jesus can do this because the Bible is clear. Now, I don't mean everything in it is clear. Peter even says some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. But the basic message of how we uh, were made by a loving God, how we rebelled against him, how we now born in sin, but yet how God's son came, he lived perfectly, he died, rose again for our sins, and now by faith and turning from your sins, you can trust him and be saved. Anyone, even a four-year-old, can understand it. The Bible's message is clear. Another important thing to realize is that spiritual truth is not devoid of content. When Jesus wanted to encourage his disciples, he didn't say, all right, let's get in a big circle. Everyone cross your legs and hum after me. He, what did he do? He taught them God's word. He didn't empty their minds. He filled their minds. If you want to grow spiritually, you have to fill your mind, not empty it. You have to fill it with God's word. And then you will grow spiritually. And Jesus summarizes the three main things that had to happen. Verse 46, we're told, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, first, third day rise from the dead, second, and third, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So first, the Messiah had to suffer. Jesus declared this several times. 
If you just do a search, suffer in the Bible and look at Luke's gospel, you'll see over and over again that Jesus says, I have to suffer. In fact, in Mark 8.32, when Peter rebuked Jesus for saying this, that he would suffer, Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. He knew the plan of God for him to redeem the world was through his suffering. As Isaiah said, the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that by his chastisement we would be brought peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Second, the Messiah had to rise on the third day, Jesus is explaining. And again, many times in Luke's gospel, Jesus told them this. One example, Luke 9.22, where Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, why did it have to be the third day? Well, because on the fourth day, by Jewish teaching, the body begins to decay. But Psalm 16.10, God declared his Holy One would not see corruption. As Job 19 says, we know that our Redeemer lives. Well, third, Jesus told them that repentance upon his name would then be preached for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, God desires, God wants us to be forgiven. That's when Jesus came to the disciples. He didn't say, how dare y'all? Why did y'all flee? Instead, he says, peace. He offers them forgiveness. And that's what we must do. If we want that forgiveness, we must repent. Now, repentance is often a misunderstood word, but repentance is really just the opposite side of the coin of faith. Faith is to believe something. Repentance is to stop believing something and to go the opposite way. So, and this is an analogy, don't get up and panic. If I said, there's a fire, if you believed me, you would not just believe, but you would repent, you would change your mind, you would get up, and you'd leave. If you didn't believe there's a fire, you'd just sit there. So, believing something then leads to changing your mind and acting differently. To say, oh, I believe you, but to sit in your chair is to not really believe. And so that's why often in the Gospels, in the New Testament, when it says repent and do works of repentance, it's not because our works bring our salvation, but they're the evidence of our repentance. And Jesus' message throughout the Gospels was one of repentance. Started with Luke, chapter 3, where John the Baptist, his forerunner, says he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To turn from your life of sin and trust that God is who he is and follow him. Acts 2.38, Peter gives his first recorded sermon and he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus is clear that repenting of our sins, trusting him, is the only way we can have forgiveness of sins. You may remember Luke chapter 5, or it's also recorded in Mark chapter 2, where there's a paralytic, a man who can't walk, 
And Jesus said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. And then the religious leaders around said, whoa, 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 you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus didn't disagree with them. Rather, he just pointed out their conclusion is wrong. Yes, only God can forgive sins. And since I've forgiven this man and he's now walking, Jesus is saying, you should realize I am God. I can forgive sins. So what do you do with your sins? You may not even think of that word. Our culture doesn't like to talk about sin. We like to talk about mistakes or Well, you know, I I made an accident, or I didn't really mean to. You know, no one's perfect, we say. We try and brush it away. And yet, if we're honest, we all do things we know we should not do. In fact, we all do things that we tell other people, you shouldn't do that. Why do we do these things that we know we shouldn't? And then, how are we going to be forgiven of them? You know, some people just try and, Push it away, Self, self-affirmation. Well, I'm really a great person. I really do a lot of good things. Others try and overcome their guilt by doing all those good things. Well, yes, I know those things I got over here that I did, but you know what? I do all these things over here. I told before, and we lived in Ohio, we had a neighbor who has been in prison for 17 years. I don't know what he did, but he got to have done something pretty strong to have been sentenced for 17 years. And I talked to him about the gospel several times, and he'd always tell me, Jeremy, I never lie. I'm telling you, Pastor, I never lie. As though his truthfulness overcame all the other things he did. Now, I'm glad he never told a lie. But doing more good doesn't get rid of your sins. Only Christ gets rid of your sins. And we have Christ by repenting of our sins and turning and trusting him. Not just forgiveness for the Jews, though, or not just forgiveness for the religious, but rather this is to be proclaimed to all nations, we're told here. Verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's why the angels, what did they say? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all nations. People. That includes people in Wichita Falls in 2023. There is good news that you can be forgiven of your sins. That you can go from death to life. From darkness to light. Not by attending church. Not by being religious. But by Christ alone. That the repentance for forgiveness of sins it's still a message that is true today. And a, <coughs> <excuse me. coughs> and a message that we should be passionate to spread around the globe. You know, sadly, there are still today 6,200 unique peoples, people groups, who've never heard the gospel. They have no Bibles in their towns. They have no message of Jesus. And so we should be passionate to reach them. Now, we can't reach everyone. We can't do everything. So our church tries to be faithful to support the Flinks in Chile, the Longorias in Utah. And I know many of you support others individually because the good news of repentance for forgiveness of sins in Christ's name 
should be rejoiced in and heard around the globe. Not only was the Messiah foretold to suffer and die and rise again, but notice Jesus' words in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Now, it's interesting the way he worded that. He didn't say, you will be witnesses, or he didn't say, go witness. He said, you are witnesses. It would be similar to me saying, Jeremy, be a husband. Well, I am a husband. That is who I am. Every person who has come to Christ is a witness. The question is, are you a faithful or an unfaithful witness? But if you have come to hear and know the things of God, you are a witness to them. So will you be a faithful witness to Christ? And their witness, again, points to the historic nature of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The disciples, and now Luke, are not passing on hearsay. They're not passing along what they wished were true or a good story that they invented so they'd have peace and hope. They were passing on the very things they saw, heard, and felt. And their commitment to being witnesses to this truth would go all the way to almost every one of them dying for it. And it's interesting, before they'd been witnesses, but they fled. But now they are witnesses who will be bold for the truth. We will next week look more, but we'll see here at the end that Jesus will go. He'll be with them for 40 days and he'll rise again. And then they will begin to spread the gospel after the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. But after that, persecution begins to arise. So we would think that maybe the disciples will do just like they did when Jesus was arrested. They'll flee. But no, that's not what they do. Acts chapter 4, 13, after they're arrested and beaten, they return. And notice what Acts 4, 29 says. They pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats, threats to beat them for sharing for Christ, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The disciples were able to have boldness because they were filled with God's Spirit, because they had seen the resurrected Lord and knew it to be true. And so Jesus will come He'll show himself to them. He will come and he'll teach them so their heads are filled. And then lastly, we see in verses 50 through 53 that Jesus blesses and leaves his disciples. Verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Then it goes on, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now this event is often called the ascension, ascending, going up. Jesus leaving the disciples and going up to be with his Father. Now we often don't spend much time thinking about the ascension. We focus on Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we should, but we should notice the importance 
of the ascension. Let me note three things. First, consider the love and kindness that Jesus stayed for 40 days to teach his disciples and give visible evidence of his resurrection. You know, 33 years on earth would have been enough. Three years with these men was enough. And yet Jesus was willing to spend 40 more days before he returned to be with his father. In love, he spent more time with them so that they might come to know him better. Except the ascension is not merely departing earth. It's him arriving in heaven. And that's important because that leads to the second thing, that this fulfills Jesus' words and God's plan. When Jesus was on trial with the religious leaders, he told them, or they asked him if he was the Christ. And in Luke twenty-two sixty-eight, 68, Jesus replied, If I tell you, you will not believe. And I, if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Those very words are the words that led them to say, He must be crucified. That He must be put to death. And yet, Jesus' ascension vindicates his father's approval of him. Another way to think about this is to consider this question. Where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? Now you may have a cross on your necklace. You may have a cross in your home. And many of them have a picture of Jesus on the cross. I don't think, not trying to offend you, But I don't think that is a good place to have Jesus. Because Jesus is no longer on the cross. He is no longer suffering. His work is finished. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what is he doing? Well, he's interceding for us. He is praying for us as well. He tells us he's preparing a place for us. For us. And that can happen because he's no longer on the cross. He is risen. He's been accepted by his Father and he is now interceding for us and preparing a place for us. Third, the disciples' reaction to the ascension points to the reality of their understanding Jesus. You know, it's interesting at the crucifixion, before the crucifixion, I should say, when Jesus told them at the Last Supper he's going to go away. It says, sorrow filled their heart. But Jesus has gone away. But notice how this ends. Verse 52. After he left, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. How could they be joyful? Before when Jesus said he was going to leave, sorrow filled their heart. Now Jesus has actually left. And they're rejoicing. Well, it's like those times when you've been with a family member. And you know that you're about to go do something great together. But you have to do some task first. And so you want to be together, but you say to them, go. Go ahead and leave. Because the sooner you go, the sooner we'll get to be together again. The disciples know that the sooner Jesus goes to the Father, 
the sooner they'll be reunited with Him. The sooner Jesus is with the Father, the sooner they would be filled with the Spirit. The sooner Jesus ascends, the sooner He will return. The sooner Jesus departs, the sooner they have a mediator in heaven interceding for them. So, they now understand on this date what they didn't before in that Jesus' departure is not a final goodbye. Rather, it's the next step for an eternity where they'll never have to say goodbye again. So where is Jesus and what is he doing? He's not on the cross, but he is in heaven pleading our case and preparing our place. Thus, may we, like the disciples, rejoice, knowing that our Savior is ascended and He is reigning at the Father's side. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Son, His perfect life, His perfect death and resurrection, and now His perfect intercession, His perfect reign next to You. Lord, we rejoice that He intercedes for us that He cries out for us. And so, Lord, we rejoice that Your Son not only died and rose again, but that He is now with You. And we long for the day when He will come again so we will no longer be apart from You forever. We pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen.